Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 1.2 of the History of England, Adventus Saxonum, The Coming of the Saxons. According to Gildas and Bede, the coming of the Saxons, even to Bede, was accompanied by fear and destruction. The Saxons brought with them violence, despair and death, fire and sword. It was a vision of Wholesale slaughter of Britons fleeing to the hills, the catastrophic fall of a civilization. Some of the wretched remnant were consequently captured on the mountains and killed in heaps. Others, overcome by hunger, came and yielded themselves to the enemy to be their slaves forever if they were not instantly slain. Others repaired depart beyond the sea with strong lamentation. Public and private buildings were raised. Priests were slain at the altar. Bishops and people alike were destroyed with fire and sword. A few wretched survivors were butchered wholesale and some eked out a wretched and fearful existence. So, this old law essentially tells a tale of wholesale devastation and driving out of the British inhabitants of the islands. Now, at the History of England, we've become accustomed to using 1066 and all that by Seller and Yeatman, and they give us the guts of the story thus. The brutal Saxon invaders drove the Britons westward into Wales and compelled them to become Welsh it is now considered doubtful whether this was a good thing. 
So we're going to spend today's episode looking at England's very own creation myth, the legend of where we've come from, our birth, as it were. Because the traditional story does indeed have it that the monoliths that stand silently on Salisbury Plain, though part of our history, of course, are left by a lost and forgotten race, not by our forefathers. That those people were driven out to the west by a mass migration of Germanic tribes, pushed out to Cornwall and Devon, to Wales and across the sea to Brittany, to start preparing campsites for the English of a later age. It's a dramatic story, and one that Broadley, Bede and Gildas both agree to, with a little bit of local variation, and with a chronology added by Bede, a deeply, deeply suspect chronology, it has to be said, but hey, 10 out of 10 for effort. The story goes, therefore, that it's firstly the Picts and the Scots that hammer the British, after the last legions have left in 409. Now, of course, the British had no real reason to suspect that these legions won't be back. After all, they've always been back before. Throughout the later 4th century, invasion has been followed by reaction, such as the quelling of the barbarian conspiracy in 387. But this time, no one comes. So, in 446, according to Bede, they write their piteous letter to Aetius who files it under bin, and no one comes. And so they gird their own loins, and at last they have some success. The horrid, painted Picts and Scots are driven back. But then, unfortunately, the British fall into their traditional trap, which, as far as Gildas is concerned, is the reason for all of this inconvenience. They start to party, and have a good time, and forget about God, and are so drunk that they hardly notice until too late that the Picts and the Scots are back. At which point there's an interesting passage from Gildas that goes like this. At that time, all members of the assembly, along with the arrogant usurper Vortigern, are blinded. Such is the protection they find for their country, it was in fact its destruction that those wild Saxons of a cursed name, hated by God and men, should be admitted into the island, like wolves into folds, in order to repel the northern nations. Nothing more hurtful, nothing more hurtful, certainly nothing more bitter, happened to the island than this. It's an interesting passage for two main reasons. One, together with other passages in Gildas, it seems to hint that the Britons were being ruled by a bunch of sub-kings that Gildas calls Tyranni, but all reporting in some way to an overlord, Vortigern in this case, some sort of central civil authority. Secondly, it suggests that the English are initially invited in to help, and this is entirely consistent with Roman history, where there are many examples of this happening and Gildas uses the correct term, federati, to describe this relationship. So, the Saxons teach the Picts and the Scots a good lesson. But these Saxons are a sneaky lot, and always intended to do a good deal more than their job. 
they send letters home to tell their friends and families to come on over and join them, for the living is good and the natives as weak as milk. And they come in their droves in 449. Let me turn then to Bede, for the story which essentially forms the core of the English foundation story. These newcomers were from the three most formidable races of Germany, the Saxons, Angles and Jutes. According to Bede, these three tribes settle different parts of England. The Saxons settle everything south of the Thames, the Angles pretty much everything north of it. And the Jutes? Well, the Jutes occupy Kent and a little bit of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. The first chieftains are a couple called Hengist and Horsa. And there's a bit of corroboration from a French chronicle called the Chronicia Galicia with all the attendant worries about the dates, which has an entry which goes The Britons, who to this time had suffered from various disasters and misfortunes, are reduced to the power of the Saxons. Now the real ambition of the perfidious folk was revealed. They quickly invented a reason to revolt against their masters, to whom they quickly deliver a beating and essentially take over the whole island. Then comes the revival, and this period appears to be the one in which Gildas himself was living and writing. There arises in the west a great British hero whom Gildas called Ambrosius Aurelianus, and with whom many historians have tried to connect Arthur. Ambrosius fights a series of battles with the Saxons back and forth, and eventually there's a great battle at a place called Mons Badonicus, Mount Baden, which Bede dates at 493. Mons Badonicus is a complete and definitive victory for the British, although they don't drive the Saxons out, but they stop them. And for a long time, 40 to 50 years maybe, the British maintain their peace. Although at this point, Bede really drops his chronology and Gildas has stopped a long time ago, so there's little detail of how all that ends. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle spends its time at this point talking about various English invaders and their various successes. Essentially, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle paints a story of a, a series of warbands coming and carving out their own petty kingdoms. So there we are, the English creation story. That's who we are as English. We're Angles, Saxons and Jutes, not Celts. Or so at least we used to think. But then into this picture came modern historical approaches and science. And it began to be noticed that the archaeological record is really, really difficult to reconcile with some basic assumptions. As I said a couple of episodes ago, there are some fundamental questions which are driven by the light this new evidence and thinking shines. Were the Anglo-Saxon settlements in fact a mass migration, or did a significant number of the existing population survive? How quickly did the process happen? In a generation? Or over a much longer period? And what was the process by which Romano-British culture and language came to be replaced by an Anglo-Saxon one? Was it a violent process or more the adoption of the Anglo-Saxon culture or even the creation of an entirely new culture, a fusion? Now this is the big one really. The question is, was this conquest, as we've always believed, 
or was it a culturalization? A culturalization in this context meaning that a new fused culture was created by two peoples coming together, the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. And so, let's do our best to answer these questions as well as we can over the next few episodes, while accepting that any attempt at an answer for the moment will be a temporary one until the next bit of evidence comes out. So, the place to start is probably with the evidence. And the place to start with that is the archaeological record, where there is a vast amount of confusing, conflicting data that leads to the brain-ear-dribbling situation remarkably speedily. One of the problems with the archaeology lies in the famous Anglo-Saxon historian Frank Stenton's statement that, quote, archaeology is a poor basis for establishing chronology. And this dogs the debate and evidence. Archaeologists do their best, of course. There is a rather wonderful progression established alongside artefacts, pottery, brooches, that sort of thing, which often can give a chronological framework. Much better recording of excavation really helps, And then dating technology and computer-based analysis has given new tools that no one had available before. Burials and cemeteries are probably the biggest single source of information, helped by the fact that there are significant differences between Romano-British burial practices and the Anglo-Saxon practices of the period. Though that is a bit complicated, because some of the fault lines that lie between the two are to do with the differences between paganism on one hand and Christianity on the other, as well as between Germanic on one side and British on the other. So when the Anglo-Saxons become Christians, that difference is rather complicated. And then a rather big red flashing light stands over all cemetery evidence. We need to understand that these practices reflect culture, not race. Now, that might seem like a pettifogging difference, but the point is that if I was a weak and feeble Briton in a village, tending my pot plants, practising origami in my spare time, and a bunch of big, hairy-arsed Anglo-Saxons with long spears and axes and an unfriendly disposition arrive in town, I would start to make myself look as Anglo-Saxon as I could, as quickly as I possibly could. Which would be pretty damn sharpish, let me tell you. So by the time I came to be six foot under, you might well not know the difference. The archaeological record as it stands raises a number of questions in no particular order. But first of all, there is a deal of evidence that supports Bede's creation story in terms of the origin of the English species, or at least the Adventus Saxonum. There are clear relationships between the archaeological record of northwestern Germany and the English settlement. It works particularly well for the Saxons and Angles. It looks as though the Angles and Saxons did probably originate in northern Germany, probably in what is now the Schleswig area and the Jutland Peninsula. There is also, though, evidence that Bede missed out a few folks that contribute to the English story as well. The Frisians, for example, from the Low Countries, the Franks from what is now France, and even the Norwegians. Probably the most serious of these omissions is the Franks, But even with them, they're much more tangential to the story than the Angles or the Saxons in particular. When it comes to the destination of our various tribes, it's all a bit more difficult. Archaeologists have identified brooches that display different characteristics between the Angles and the Saxons, for example. And then they've plotted them against known burials. 
and it shows some differences. There's a thickening of the Angle type to the north and east. There's a thickening of the Saxon type to the south and west. There's a valuable lesson in that. Neat little maps that show clear separations are a lie and a disgrace, including the ones I post on my website. There are no certainties, no neat divisions. There is a lot of melding of all types of people and culture. Anglo-Saxon burials do fully support the notion that the Britons are pushed to the west. And they do support a notion that the Anglo-Saxons' control of the west of England is a 6th and 7th century and later phenomenon rather than the 5th century. And that Devon and Cornwall will remain British for some time to come. OK, so there is also a limited evidence of violence. There are a reasonably large number of graves where the male inhabitant carries a spear. It's been pointed out, this doesn't necessarily mean warrior. It could be a hunting spear. And interestingly, the proportion of graves with spears decreases as the centuries roll by. And this is probably a sign of a greater element of social stratification in later society. So the picture is of a bunch of tribespeople, all very much on the same level, arriving all armed to the teeth, with the odd boss and leader hanging around. As time goes by, arms and armour become the sign of status and a warrior class, and therefore become more rare, while the average Joe gets to work in the fields with a hoe and isn't allowed to do the spear thing anymore. But back to the violence point... Robin Freeman, in her book, Britain After Rome, particularly makes great play of this, that the lack of violence suggests a process of a culturalisation rather than the traditional violent conquest story. And it's a good point. However, it's worth pointing out that if there were lots of battles, the losers, who would probably, presumably, outnumber the winners, might never have been buried, or they were buried in some mass grave in the middle of nowhere that we're unlikely to find. And also, conquest doesn't necessarily mean physical violence. So picture the scene again. There am I, a gentle Romano-British inhabitant, tending my pot plant, doing my origami. Fifty hairy-arsed Saxons roll up. Do I carefully donate my pot plant to my next of kin? Boldly grab my gladius and head to a glorious death and try to create a few handsome Anglo-Saxon graves with clear evidence of violence for archaeologists in later centuries? Or alternatively, do I say yes sir, no sir, and attend to whatever menial and degrading task to which I've been assigned? Now personally, I'm going to go weak, not need and cowardly. There would be no evidence of violence, but it's violent nonetheless. When I go to the grave... I doubt very much that the low-level violence frequently visited on me in the school dinner queue will show up, but nonetheless, it was violence that achieved its objective every bit as effectively as a spear through my neck. The archaeological evidence about the jute thing is a bit more difficult than the Angle and Saxon thing. There are indeed differences in the archaeological record between the Angle and the Saxon on one hand and the jutes in Kent and Hampshire on the other. It also shows up in landholding, interestingly enough. Ladies and gentlemen, how interested are you in land units? It is in land units that I find my true inner geek. Ever since I read about Sulongs, the subject has held something of a fascination for me. I weep. Anyway, to the point. For most of England, the Anglo-Saxons will adopt a basic unit of landholding called 
the hide. The hide is the amount of land required to support a family for a year, or so at least it was described by the Venerable Bede. And what a superb division that is! So, bear in mind that the amount of land needed to support a family on the edge of Scarfell Pike is going to be considerably larger than the equivalent amount of land needed in the rich, fertile and low-lying land of Norfolk. Now the modern mind rebels. Hey dude, that's not a standard measure, that's really confusing. And of course nowadays I guess the modern mind is right for modern purposes, but for the purposes of medieval England, the hide is a much better concept. Anyway, that's a digression. The point is that uniquely in Kent, the unit of land measurement was not the hide, it was the sulong, derived from the old English word for plough, sula. The definition for the word sulong is driven not by the amount of output from land, as it does for the hide, but the amount of work required to plough it. So, a sulong was the amount of land that can be managed by one plough and a team of eight oxen. A quarter of a sulong was a yoke, emphasising the connection with the act of ploughing. Now this fascinating bit of information is both a support and a detraction from Bede's claim that the Jutes settled Kent, parts of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. So on the one hand, this is a different unit from Angle and Saxon settlements. On the other hand, the origin of the Jutes is obscure and the Sulong thing seems to equate more with practices in the Rhineland than with the Jutland Peninsula, nowadays of course known as Denmark. And the burial practices and surviving artefacts as well from this period seem to point more to Frankish origins than anything else, so it's all a bit confusing. It's at this point that I hear an exasperated tooth-sucking from the listeners. I can hear you shouting at your unbranded MP3 players, slamming down your smoothing irons, pulling the emergency chain on the commuter train. Come on, dummy, I can hear you shout. It's completely obvious that the Jutes came from Jutland. Jute! Jutland! Come on! Well, I'm sorry, I thought that too. Come on, I thought, let's not complicate life. Jutes, Jutland. That is apparently a schoolboy error. The origin of Jutland is from a different route, the Swedish Utah. I guess even if it was Jute Jutland, it's not necessarily evidence. It could be that the name Jutland came after the idea that the Jutes landed in England and came from that peninsula. But anyway, we're drifting off the point. We were talking about the evidence from archaeology. To recap, the evidence suggests a connection with northern Germany. It suggests that there were different cultures and broadly, Angles and Saxons at least seems very sensible. But it doesn't support a violent conquest, necessarily. It suggests a very much longer and gradual process. Which brings us on to the concept of a culturalization. This basically says that rather than a violent conquest where all the British were pushed out to the west, what happened was that many stayed, but that they began to look like Anglo-Saxons. So much is made of a cemetery at a place called Wasperton, where it's clear that both communities lived side by side. But as time goes by, customs and dress combined, so that both communities essentially become one, borrowing habits and customs from each other. The trouble is that cemeteries like Wasperton are relatively rare. 
So the model makes a lot more sense, though. Surely it's a little difficult to visualise an invasion so severe and so big that all of the local population was either completely wiped out or pushed out. Newer areas of science have been applied to the problem. One absolutely fascinating one is paleobotany, which shows the odd lightening insight, like the marsh reclaiming York, for example, based on the evidence of pollen grains. Paleobotany shows that across England there is little evidence of a large-scale reforestation that might have been expected if there'd been a massive population drop. And that used to be the concept. Anglo-Saxon invaders occupying empty wasteland. In fact, that doesn't seem to be right at all. Actually, there may even have been some pressure on the better agricultural land. And then there's genetics and the study of DNA. Tantalising studies. One study suggested that 38% of the population showed a continental influence in lowland England. The comparable figure was that only 13% showed the same influence in Wales. But the trouble is dating that. One study suggested all of this could have been in place since the Ice Age. Others, that it could have been overlaid during the 9th and 10th centuries. Then there's language and place names. Now then, this is where all that namby-pamby stuff about a culturalisation comes under real pressure. Because hate it or loathe it, by 570, Old English was widely spoken and driving other languages out of lowland Britain. Barely 20 words are still in use in English that come from either British Latin or Britonic from before 600. The vast majorities of place names are no earlier than Old English. It looks like an absolute slam dunk. It's a complete and comprehensive takeover, a wipeout. The way it's supposed to work in these situations is that the losers imitate the winners, not the other way around. So if the story was that the Anglo-Saxons invaded and conquered the British, you would expect Old English to have replaced Britonic with a minimum of loanwords taken into Old English. And hey presto, this is exactly what happens. QED, wham bam, thank you Sam. But there are nuances. First of all, the survival of pre-migration place names is very much more prevalent in the west of England. And so it supports that story of a late survival of British culture there. So fine. The second is that while we may know that a place name is English, it's not always very clear when it became so. And it could be relatively late. So, for later generations, who have forgotten their mixed inheritance, they begin to rename now alien British-sounding places with good, honest Anglo-Saxon names. So, it could have been these places acquired their names in the 8th or 9th centuries, rather than as a result of 5th and 6th century settlement. And finally, there's a thing called settlement shift that may accentuate all of this. Settlement shift is a common phenomenon, where villages move over time. So, some folk arrive, they build some houses. Great. Then those houses rot, or are deserted, and rather than go through all the pain of clearing the old site and rebuilding, they just build a new plot at the edge of town. And so the village sort of crawls along over time. Or more simply, it could just be that rather than inhabiting an existing British village, the Anglo-Saxons made a new one. So, it could be that along the way of all this happening, the villages acquire a new Anglo-Saxon name. 
So even place name evidence is by no means conclusive proof of the mass migration theory. There's one more confusing thing about the migrations and settlements. Everything happened so very differently in England to how it happened in Gaul. Across the Channel, the old structures of the Roman Empire survived for much longer. And as the smelly barbarians arrived, they copied much of the clean and sophisticated culture they found when they arrived, since it looked so very cool. Everyone wanted to be a Roman. Much of the Latin survives. The existing governmental structure survived and were copied by the invaders. The process is very recognisably one of acculturalization, where the invaders copy the culture they meet when they arrive and become like the invaded. Unlike England, where the existing culture is swept away and the invaders' culture takes over. So, hopefully I've convinced you that it's all jolly confusing with lots of conflicting evidence. Hopefully by now you're biting your fingernails in a worried kind of way. What's the answer, David? Tell us, what's the answer? Well, that's the fun of it all. We really don't know. It could be anything. But the theory of a genocidal replacement of the British by English is now so unpopular as to be almost illegal. So, here's one view. The story of the late 4th century and early 5th century has been told, a rather swift breakdown of the old order and economy. Into this world came new inhabitants from the continent seeking a better life. Now, the tradition is that these are Saxons invited by Vortigern. Many historians cry foul, citing lack of evidence. But you have to realise that the numbers involved in this army could be tiny. The field army could have been in the hundreds, and it's certainly extremely unlikely to have been more than the odd thousand. Inviting folk from outside the border to defend the Roman Empire is entirely standard Roman procedure. The point is, even if you don't like the mass conquest theory, you don't have to reject the idea that Vortigern invited the Saxons over. But probably many of the first people came in a completely different way. Families, in small groups of boats, or even a single boat, coming to settle rather than fight, coming to live beside the British inhabitants. There's clear evidence of early Anglo-Saxon settlements that appear to have been unaccompanied by violence, especially at the head of the Thames, for example, which is jolly significant for the history of Wessex, by the way. The Anglo-Saxon army rebels, as per the story, from the 430s to the 450s, and the British descend further into chaos. Which then brings us to the crucial question, are there then floods of Anglo-Saxon invaders who now arrive and push the British out, or what? Or what? is probably the answer. Nobody but nobody knows the population of Britain at this time. There are educated guesses, with vast margins of error, so the best guess is for a 4th century population of somewhere between 3 and 4 million people in England. Seems very likely there is some sort of population drop, given that the collapse of the economic system coincided with a downturn in the agricultural climate, leaving Britain cooler and wetter. Sorry, even cooler and even wetter. But as we've discussed, that doesn't seem to have been a massive drop. So the question is how many invaders then came over, and whatever the number actually is, the basic assumption is that it must have been relatively small, maybe one quarter of the number of Britons. 
Once Vortigern's Anglo-Saxon warband had turned against their master, the news went back home that there's a land of milk and honey just waiting for you. Granted it's a bit damp, but basically we've got a future there. It's likely that this is a long process, maybe as long as from the mid-5th century to the end of the 6th. From there, we see the success of Anglo-Saxon culture over the native British, which pushes out language. You have to ask, why? Why was it not like Gaul, where the incomers accept the local culture? How do you explain why Anglo-Saxon culture wins out if the Anglo-Saxons are only one quarter of the population? No one likes this, but violence has got to be one of the answers, doesn't it? Very unpopular, but a Romano-British society that has yet to adapt to the need to organise itself around war again has been invaded by war bands from a culture that is organised around warrior culture. As war bands arrive, the defeated naturally either have to adopt the new way of life or become slaves. Another reason is the strength of Roman culture in Britain. It was way weaker than in Gaul. It was conquered later than Gaul, the Romans saw British culture as something of a contradiction in terms, and the level of assimilation was low. Unlike Gaul, there were no local Roman leaders, no central authority, the towns and their defensive walls were abandoned, even Christianity wasn't completely embedded. And there's also the attitude of the invaders. The Franks who invaded Gaul had always lived on the fringe of the empire. They knew the empire, they knew how it worked. When they invaded, they did so on a large scale, taking over an existing working state. Why would you not take over the existing organs of state that allowed you to collect taxes and control the population? Clovis, the king of the Franks, converted to Christianity, maybe because he saw the light, but maybe because he saw a wonderful way of controlling his population. Whereas when the invaders arrived in England, there was little surviving government structure, or taxation, the use of coins had ended a long time ago. And the Anglo-Saxons who came over came from a society with very little social structure, no experience of organising themselves around things like taxation and kings. So the conclusion is that it's a very different situation to that which existed in Gaul. So why did Anglo-Saxon culture win out? Accepting a basic military dominance then, the Anglo-Saxons controlled the land. They found a lack of a vibrant local infrastructure to adopt and with their own completely different social structure, it is Anglo-Saxon law, culture, social structure, language that wins out. The local population is forced to adopt them. And once that's happened, society is organised to encourage the greater supremacy of Anglo-Saxon culture. You might be interested to know that the old English term for a Briton was Wala, from which comes the modern word Welsh. The word originally also meant foreigner, but it came to mean unfree or slave. And that's got to tell us something about how society developed for the native population, and it's probably not great news. The incentive for the British to become as Anglo-Saxon as possible was then institutionalised. You could be proud and British and be a slave, or be a traitor to your tribe and have a chance. The law codes that develop in the 6th century show that as a British household you faced considerable legal disadvantages. 
incidentally giving pretty clear evidence that British households did in fact survive and were not wiped out, otherwise why put them in the law codes? Language is a key indicator of whether you're thought of as British or Anglo-Saxon, and so Britonic goes the way of all flesh. There are a couple of other points to make. All of this is very localised and mixed up and confused. There are a bunch of warbands wandering around, making their fortune, building their little communities. Probably finding existing communities of Anglo-Saxons already living in villages in some places they arrived. And on the other hand, there will be pockets where Britons held on. So, for example, there are a number of place names that survive with a component deriving from Walla, such as Walton, Wallasey, which might reflect communities headed by Britons and remaining distinctively British to a late date. In Western England, Cornwall and Devon, we know British communities remain free of Anglo-Saxon control until much later. There are some areas where actually the old Roman civil boundaries do survive. Lincolnshire, for example, is based very much on the Roman province of Lindsay, and the Kingdom of Elmet near Leeds is clearly British. All of which indicates that the settlement of England, or at least its cultural journey from British to Anglo-Saxon, takes time, happens at different rates in different places. The long and short, then, and the answers to our questions, subject to radical change at any point, are these. The population that called themselves Anglo-Saxon in England, in fact, came to be a cultural tag, not an ethnic one. In terms of the ethnic makeup, that remained dominated by native British population. The process was probably elongated over a century or more. The process by which Anglo-Saxon replaced Romano-British culture has got to be accompanied by military power and violence to a degree, though there may well have been an initial migration that was largely peaceful. The victory of Anglo-Saxon culture was embedded by that basic dominance and by the weakness of the surviving culture. Incentives to change were embedded in the structures of the new society. Now, there's nothing in this that seems to me that intrinsically conflicts with the written record. The basic narrative is all there in the use of federate troops, the arrival of more immigrants, the violence. So there we go, the Adventus Saxonum. But we can't leave it there, obviously. We need to find out what this new society was like in the early years. We can't or don't want to forget about Cherditch, Hengist, Horsa, Aller, Athelbert, the semi-legendary early invaders. Even if they turn out to be completely legendary, it's far too good a story to miss. So next time, let's move on to that story and the 6th and 7th century. Thanks to all of you for your support. Good luck, everyone. And have a great four weeks. <laughs>